Morning. How's it going? Good. All right. My name's Matt, if I haven't met you. Um, I'm the pastoral intern, and uh, that means I get to do the things Andrew doesn't want to do, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, but he's on sabbatical, if you haven't been here or you're new. Um, he's on sabbatical for the next month, so I get the privilege of uh, preaching alongside Jeff and Mark, and it's going to change up some rhythms, and I'm excited about it, and I'm excited to be here with you all. Um, if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be. So on the Pew Bibles, it should be uh, page 923 and 924, so go ahead and turn there. And while you're turning there, I want to read some statements, and I'm going to read us three sets of statements, and the, the sets are going to be made up of opinions that are of one side of the continuum or the other of how we view God and how we view ourselves. And these aren't meant to be for you to share with anybody. I just want you to take some time to honestly reflect on these and honestly reflect if what you are believing when it comes to these statements is in line with the truth of the gospel. So just listen intently and reflect on some of these. So the first set of statements is I come to God boldly in prayer, recognizing that I stand in the confidence of Jesus' work on my behalf. And on the flip side, I might consider Jesus from time to time, but there are a number of things, whether feelings of inadequacy or a sinful lifestyle, that I think needs to be cleaned up before I'm comfortable coming to God. Which one of these resonates with you the most? The next set is, I believe that I am in constant need of God and am insufficient to accomplish any good work apart from him. Or do you think I'm an overall decent person and I believe that other people, including God himself, would recognize that quality in me? The final set of statements, as a follower of Jesus, I'm willing to set aside my own preferences and comforts as a reflection of the fact that Jesus sacrificed for me. Or, I think it's a good thing to care for people, but I have personal needs that have to be met before I'm willing to take the time to consider someone else. So these aren't easy statements, and if we're honest, I think on any given day at any given time, we drift in between these. But the thing is, the more we understand our access to God, and the way we understand our access to God, impacts the way that we're willing to be honest and come to Him and do relationship with one another. The way that we think about our own sufficiency and our own ability to go from day to day impacts the way we recognize our need for Jesus. And the way that we, we think about Jesus' ministry has an impact on the way that we serve one another and are willing to sacrifice for one another. And you see, what's beautiful about today's passage in Acts 15 is that it confronts us, us on a really personal level and it makes us ask with what we're feeling on the inside and believing from day to day is actually in line with the truth of, what's God, of what God's word says. It makes us confront ourselves on what we believe about what Jesus did for us and God's grace merited to us and how we respond to that. So we're about halfway through the book of Acts and we've covered a lot of theology, and we've, co we've covered a lot of history, and I know it can be a little bit heavy, and I think it's valuable that we take some time to kind of uh, cover and, and summarize what's happened up until this point in the book, and we can't cover everything, but here's some of the main points. We'll start uh, in the Gospel of Luke. So in the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke is writing to tell us about what Jesus has done. He has come, he has lived a perfect life, he has died, and he has risen, and 
and, in, and then in Acts, we have Dr. Luke continuing, he's the author of both books, continuing to tell us that Jesus ascends and he promised that he's gonna uh, send the Holy Spirit to his followers. And this happens as he ascends, obviously, and his followers, who are all Jewish individuals at this time, they start doing miracles in Judea and Samaria, in Jerusalem, And in the midst of this, in the midst of this story, we meet a man named Paul. And Paul is a persecutor of the early church. And through a miracle and a miraculous conversion, God blinds him on the road to Damascus and ends up healing him so that Paul would not only believe in him, but that he would end up, as we read, he would be an instrument in order to share the gospel to the Gentiles. Then we read about Peter. And Peter, one of Jesus' early followers, meets a man named Cornelius, who's a Gentile. And a Gentile is anyone that is a non-Jew in this context. And he meets Cornelius. And as, as I just said, the, the only people in the early church at this time, up until that point, were Jewish individuals. And so he meets Cornelius, and he shares the gospel with Cornelius. And something interesting happens as Cornelius and his household are saved. And they're amazed because now not only Jews, but Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit. And it becomes quite clear that God's plan was not only just to include Jews, but Gentiles and any people that would place their faith in Jesus. So now the church has been shown clearly that that anybody can be included in the assembly of God's people. And what's interesting now is now they have a different call that they have to not only consider who they're sharing the gospel with, not just to Jews, now they have to share it with anybody and everybody. And they have to go to the Gentiles now. And so we ask who's going to go to the Gentiles, and we met Paul. And so Paul teams up with, if we look at the gospel of Mark, Mark's cousin's name is Barnabas. And he teams up with Barnabas, and they go on what we call Paul's first missionary journey. And so Paul goes on three journeys. And so Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and they do this little loop around to some of the Gentile cities, and they're seeing Gentiles come to Christ. They're seeing miracles done. They're seeing God doing an incredible work. And so they return to Antioch, all pumped up, psyched, to tell them what's going on in the kingdom of God. And then not long after that, there's some Jewish Christians that walk into Antioch and they make a really interesting claim that starts this conundrum among God's people. They say that Gentile Christians have to obey the law and be circumcised in order that they are saved. So that's the text we're stepping into and that's the conversation we're gonna be addressing. Must a Christian that is not a Jew, still obey the law and be circumcised to be saved. And so the early church's response, we'll read that uh, later on in chapter 15, but the early church's response tells us three things. It tells us that Jesus fulfilled the law and therefore it is not necessary for the Gentiles to do the law in order to earn salvation. So we have nothing left to do in order to be made right in God's eyes because Jesus did it for us. It tells us that it is God who extends and merits the grace to the believer. Therefore, we don't have a room to boast, and we have no right imposing unnecessary expectations on one another. And it tells us that Jesus sacrificed for all, and therefore, and is an expression of his sacrifice. An expression of this, we count each other as more important than ourselves. So let me repeat this. Jesus fulfilled the law, so we have nothing left to do in order to approach God. God extends grace so we cannot boast, and Jesus sacrificed for us so as an expression of that we serve one another. So let's look at the text. Uh, 
I'm going to start in chapter 14, verse 24, and where that's going to pick up is right as Paul and Barnabas are getting back from this missionary journey. And I'm going to read us through 15, uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 21. So if you'd stand in honor of God's word and work, and we'll read the text. It says this, Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended by the grace of God for the work they had, that had been fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and there remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved." And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way to the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this word, of, uh, and with this word the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Go ahead and have a seat. Thanks. Now, we've already kind of laid out what, uh, what's happening here, what we're going to encounter, but there's a couple of concepts that are being brought to the table in history that uh, we have preconceptions of that I think it's worth graciously addressing. When we think of Old Testament law, I think we all have different ideas of what this means. Some of us think of these as good rules that we should try and live our life by to be a good person. Some of us think of these as rules that are a burden for us to hold on to, so we need to let them go. But how much do we really think of God's law as something that is loving and gracious? Have you ever thought of God's law as his love letter to his early covenant people? to instruct them in how to be in a relationship with him. 
This is what was happening in Old Testament Israel. They had just left Egypt, and they didn't know how to be in a relationship with a holy God. And so God, in, in his grace, gives them laws and statutes that they can follow, not so that they can not make him angry, not so that they can check it off on a list, but so that they can be in relationship and enter into covenant with the creator of all things. Now, as we read about the Jewish uh, believers that are coming and claiming you need to be circumcised and follow the law, this is the idea of the law that is going on in their mind. This is a much more attractive idea than what we often run into when it comes to law and grace and the clash between the two of those. So it's understanding that as we look at these Jewish believers, they would think that God's people have to follow the law. If we look at the Old Testament, God's people followed the law to be in covenant, Old Testament Israel. And now we look at the New Testament, and the church is the new Israel that doesn't just include Jews, but Jews and Gentiles and everybody else willing to put their faith in Jesus. So of course, why wouldn't they follow the law? If that's what they did before, why wouldn't they do that again? There's only one problem with this, and it doesn't start with the law, and it starts with us. Old Testament Israel demonstrated something very clearly for us. They demonstrated that in our sinful humanity, we were incapable of perfectly entering into that covenant with God. We were uh, perfectly incapable of being a sinless people. The thing is, God created the law, so inherently it was good. The issue was, we are not a good people. And as we gaze into God's law, we see that we're staring into a mirror that shows us our imperfections. So we're left with a conundrum at this point. If God is the only perfect being, wouldn't it be that only he can perfectly fulfill his law? But we're not God, we're human beings. So how can a God who is not us redeem humanity? Could it be that God could step into our place and fulfill it on our behalf? Does this sound familiar? It should sound familiar if you're a believer. You see, what these Jewish Christians weren't understanding is that Jesus made a couple radical claims. He not only claimed to be man, but he claimed to be God. And he said that he was coming and fulfilling the law himself. He was the embodiment of what it meant to fulfill the law. Not just doing things on a checklist, but the heart motives, the internal covenant that God was working. And then he pushed it a step further and he doubled down and he said, I'm fulfilling the law for anybody who will follow me. I mean, this is one of the most loving pictures we have of fulfillment in the Bible. If God came in Christ and he fulfills the law and merits us the credit of fulfilling the law, then how much of the law does that mean we have to fulfill for ourselves? It's not rhetorical. Someone answer. None of it. Thank you. Got one person. Right. We are not responsible to be fulfilling the law for ourselves. We do not bear that burden because Jesus bore his cross and fulfilled the law for us. And what is doubly amazing is obedience is still significant. Because if you are a follower of Christ, he imparts to you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in you that you will by nature start obeying the law. He is sanctifying you that you will by nature want to obey God. Church, we're called to be a different community. Not a community that is built on rules and statutes, but one that is built upon God's grace and what he did for us. 
And I understand what it feels like when we struggle with deep sin and we stumble day after day after day and what that feels like. And it feels like we are separated from a holy God and we want to run away from him and we want to run away from one another. It's Adam and Eve syndrome, right? The same thing that they did. We feel that feeling because on our own, we are not worthy. We have no business coming before a holy God. But if you are in Christ, the reality is you are not alone. And when you stand before God, you do not have to merit your own credit. You do not have to earn your own worth before God or anybody else because Jesus has credited it to you through fulfilling the law on your behalf. There is nothing left to do but respond in thanksgiving to what God has done for us. Now, as we wade into the next 13 or so verses, we get into kind of this nitty-gritty of the conversation that happens in Jerusalem as Paul and Barnabas and some others, they are sent to Jerusalem in order to figure out, do they need to obey the law to be saved? And as we just traced out, their answer is going to be no. They don't need to fulfill the law, but we have to understand something. We have to understand that we are addressing now a salvation issue. See, these Jewish Christians at the time, some of them did not understand that, that salvation was not tied to following the law. And as they go to Jerusalem, we have to get that Jerusalem at the time is the headquarters of the early church. And so whatever call they make on this issue, on this salvific issue, that's, it carries weight with it. This is, what, this is the end all be all and what we're going to be going for. So they're trying to discern what this means for them. So now we're asking a different question, not do we have to fulfill the law, but if we don't have to fulfill the law, then how do we earn salvation? Or, as we'll see, how is salvation given? So as we look at the text in verses 6 through about 19, there's two people that are chiming into the conversation. First, Peter is chiming into the conversation, and we talked about Peter, Jesus' early follower, and he claims that clearly God wants the Gentiles in the church because as much as 10 years earlier than this moment right here, he watched Cornelius and his household come to Christ. He then reminds the Jewish people present, the Jewish believers, so let's, let's keep this in perspective. This is an in-house debate between the church. This is not Jewish people versus Christians. This is Jewish Christians versus Gentile Christians and what this looks like. So he reminds the Jewish people, the Jewish believers, that they nor their ancestors were able to keep this law that we talked about. And they have no right imposing it on the Gentiles because clearly they're not saved by this because they were incapable of doing it. So then we ask, how are we saved? And verse 11 opens that door for us. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Saved through grace. Then we have James, and James is not only Jesus' half-brother, but he's a prominent pastor in Jerusalem at this time. And if you read Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, Josephus recalls how James was uber-meticulous in following the law. And this man chimes in now, James, and he says that of course they don't need to follow the law. Scripture affirms this. Scripture affirms that it is God's work. He quotes Amos, and he says, after this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. Clearly, this is God's work, 
and not something that people do in their own power. Both James and Peter are affirming not only Jewish and Gentile inclusion within the church, but they're affirming that no one, two, three laws, no laws, no 613 as we find in the Old Testament can save anybody, but only one Jesus. Church, we have to get this straight in how we approach God and how we understand ourselves. We contribute nothing to our salvation. Not one worship lyric, not one feed my starving children community group outing, not one good intention. Well, these are good things and God works good things in us. They do not contribute to our salvation. If we look at it theologically, faith, as Ephesians said, is even something given by God. Repentance, the scriptures say, is granted to us. Grace is merited by God because we haven't been able to do it on our own. And Jesus He wasn't just given by God, he was God. So where does this leave us? How does this play out practically? What does this mean for us? I believe ultimately, the only thing that we can stand on in this place is Christ's work and our humility. The only thing we can say is Jesus saved me at that point. And practically, how does this humility plays out? It plays out in a recognition that we're not able to perfectly obey God, and yet God has been gracious to us. So we understand that we can't be making our own laws and imposing it on a people who are incapable as well of perfectly obeying and then condemning them for it. Friends, pushing each other to grow, pushing each other in discipleship and accountability, these are marks of fruit being born within the church. But there's a very fine line when it comes to expecting someone to meet a standard that you couldn't meet yourself. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of your own works. It is a gift from God that no one may boast. Is this truth something that we're living into daily? Because preaching this at the very least, preaching this to ourselves, should lead us to humble worship of God. Finally, we see James' response in verse 19 through 21. So they've had the conversation, and James makes an official call on where the church is at. We have learned that uh, Christians are not liable to fulfill the law. Obedience is good, but that has no merit on their salvation. We learn that we are saved through uh, through grace as we extend faith to God. It is an unmerited gift that he has given us because we could not do it on our own. But now... James says something really interesting. Verses 19 through 20 say this, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. See, if you research this, he's pointing back to Leviticus and he's pointing back to the laws in Leviticus. And you might think, James, didn't you just affirm Peter? Didn't you just affirm that the scriptures say that Jesus fulfilled the law for us, that all people are welcome to come into the church because of Jesus' work? So why do you seem then to be backtracking and pushing the law now on these Gentiles after you just affirmed that this was not something that they were liable to do? Then verse 21 hits, and it should click. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
So we see that James is not affirming that they're saved by what they do. He's saying, Gentiles, there is nothing you can do. James, or, uh, Jews, there is nothing you can do to save yourself. Jesus saves you, and, I, and God gives you grace. But are you willing to lay down some of those freedoms and some of those preferences in order to live a lifestyle so that you can enter into deep relationship with the people of the body of Christ? You see, Jewish, for a Jewish Christian, they inherently would have been obeying the law. It was just part of their lifestyle before they would have come to Christ. It would have just been a daily walk of something that they didn't even think about. But Gentile Christians would have lived in a much different way. They wouldn't have thought about following the law in the same way. And so what James is saying is you're not following the law to be saved. You're following it so that you cannot offend these Jews, so that you can come into a deep relationship with them and share in fellowship. This might be the most practical thing that we look at all day today. I mean, if you go into a Christian bookstore, how many books do we find that talk about different styles of worship, different ways to do small groups? You could find 20 books with 25 different opinions on how we do ministry, on how we do a service, and how we relate to one another. But how often do we consider taking our preferences, taking the freedoms that we have, taking our comforts, and laying them down for each other so that we can enter into a deeper state of relationship. I mean, let's consider Jesus. He is our, our shining example here. He is the creator of all things. He is the law fulfiller. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need the creation. He is perfect in all his ways, perfectly holy. And what does God do? He does the most disgusting thing that God could do and he enters into sinful humanity and takes on flesh. If that's not humbling, I don't know what is. He is our shining example of what it means to lay oneself down for the sake of others. Church, are there freedoms or preferences, whether in worship or lifestyle or relationships, that we need to be laying down for the betterment of our brothers and sisters? What a demonstration of God's love that would be if we were reflecting Jesus' humility in this way. You know, I, I get that uh, we've been in Acts for a while, and in fact, I've gotten to the point where I've felt like it's quite heavy this morning as we look at this text, but I think it's really important that we keep things simple. We keep ourselves reminded that we've seen that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. So are there barriers we're putting up or excuses that we've been making of what needs to be done before we take steps towards God or one another. We see that it is God who has extended the grace to us. So are there places where we're trying to recognize our own goodness or glorify ourselves instead of God? Or we're acting in God's place by imposing a law upon others that we couldn't follow ourselves? And we've seen that Jesus, although he is God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped but humbled himself by becoming a servant? Are there ways that we can be serving others by sacrificing our preferences and our comforts as a reflection of Christ's sacrifice for us? We're gonna transition into a time of communion and reflection as Ben and the worship team, they come up. But I just want us to think about some of these things and reflect on these. Think about God's grace. Think about Christ's work for us. And think about how we respond to that in our everyday life and the way that we interact with one another.
And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I just want to ask you to be honest. What is stopping you from placing your faith in him? If it's a circumstance or it's feelings, or if it's the feeling of inadequacy, then you need to know that Jesus died so that that could die in you, so that you could gain a new identity, and he rose so that you could rise to a new life. We talked about baptism. That is what we're symbolizing by baptism. In church, let's just take this time to remember Jesus, to gratefully receive what he's done for us. Remember that his body was broken, that he bled for us. Not so that we could go on trying to earn our own salvation or feeling unworthy, but so that we could see that we in him are more worthy, more accepted, more loved than we could ever conceive of. As we go into communion, go ahead and take the elements as they come to you. And let's just rest in God's grace this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our Savior King. And we stand before a holy God with nothing to offer but filthy righteousness. We could not be made right in your eyes. But God, your perfect righteousness, the way that you lived your life in Christ, fulfilled the law for us. You are gracious and you have merited this to us for any who will believe in you. So God, let us not take up a yoke that you have taken upon yourself for us, but let us take up our cross and follow you. You have given us freedom, so let us not use that freedom to to sin, to continue in sin, but to honor you with our lives. Spirit, work your will in us as your people, that we would be a light in the way that we interact with each other and the way that we interact with the community around us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.